This is the Physical Activity Researcher Podcast, a podcast for researchers of sedentary behavior, physical activity, and sports. Join for a relaxed dialogue about research design, practicalities, and, well, anything related to research. Learn from your fellow researchers useful and relevant information that does not fit into formal content and limited space of scientific publications. And here is your host. Welcome, everyone. This is the Meaningful Sport Podcast, and I am your host, Nora Ronkainen. Meaningful Sport is a series of discussions on the why and how involvement in sport and physical activity can be an important part of a life worth living. If you are interested in the theme, you might also want to check out MeaningfulSport.com. There you can find podcast show notes, read a blog, and access many resources for further explorations of meaningful sport. Welcome back to the second part of our conversation on emotions in sport with Dr. Yunus Tunsel. Uh, the recording was already done in August, uh, but it's only being released now uh, because of my maternity leave, and sorry about that. Uh, but so I hope you enjoyed the first part uh, that's available before this one. It will be good to hear it uh, because we're going to jump right back on. And so uh, in this episode today, we continue exploring emotions in sport from a philosophical perspective. We move on to discussing dimensions such as anxiety, fear, and joy in sport. And so the first part, if you didn't listen to that one, we uh, discussed some of the uh, foundational work of uh, philosophers such as Aristotle, Nietzsche, Hume, and Spinoza, and so how you can use these ideas to build a framework for understanding emotions and then applying that uh, in sport context. So um, to again be, uh, briefly introduce uh, my guest today, Yunus uh, Tunsel teaches philosophy at the New School, New York, uh, and in New York University's Liberal Studies program. He's the author of several books, including the recent works uh, Nietzsche on Human Emotions, and Emotion in Sport, Philosophical Perspectives. And the latter uh, is the central uh, work that we will use as a starting point for our conversation today. And so before we jump back on, just to say that I will start doing some new recordings again sometime in the new year, in a couple of months' time, through two, three months' time. And so I'm really uh, always delighted to hear new ideas, what would be topics you would like to hear, who would be the guests uh, who haven't been in the podcast yet, or maybe somebody who you would like to hear again. Um, send me a message on Twitter. I'm always happy to hear some new ideas, and uh, it's possible uh, to suggest yourself as well if you are working around the topic of meaning uh, in sport. And so now I will let you get back to the uh, recording with Eunice. I hope you enjoy uh, the episode and it gives you some new ideas to think further. And so, I mean, we did quite a big tour with different philosophers. So we have covered Nietzsche, Hume, um, Aristotle, Spinoza so far. And so they are the key characters in your book on emotions in sport. But then you go a little bit into discussing existential philosophy, a little bit of Kierkegaard, a little bit of Heidegger and talking, um, exploring these links uh, between fear, anxiety, and authenticity, and also mentioning the work um, 
that Gunnar Breivik has done in this area in looking into skydiving, for example. And I think this is quite um, interesting because these um, philosophical ideas about fear and anxiety are quite different from psychological literature. So you mentioned in the book performance anxiety. Anxiety in the, philosoph- uh, in the psychological literature is more something that we want to deal or deal with and reduce and get away from. But from a philosophical perspective, uh, these ideas open up in a little bit different light. So I think this would be interesting for us to explore next. Well, yeah, I mean, it's the, okay, the angst, you know, the angst or anxiety is um, treated often as a negative emotion in some, not all, in some psychological circles. Whereas for Kierkegaard, and then Heidegger picks up on that, anxiety is in fact a positive. Talking about, you said earlier, what about positive emotions? It is a, anxiety is a positive, liberating emotion where we deal with our, with our fears. Uh, fear is a, what kind of prevents us from opening up, from taking a step uh, towards um, dealing with the subject of fear. So basically, anxiety, according to Kierkegaard, uh, you are throwing yourself towards different possibilities, uh, which opens you up to freedom, but also authenticity. Authenticity in the sense that uh, you become your own self, you become closer to yourself. So, and Heidegger links that to also death, being towards death, but it's not really, it's not really dying. So I talk about that in my book, uh, you know, taking a step uh, towards your authenticity by throwing yourself onto new possibility doesn't mean that you want to die, uh, but it could be risky. I mean, that's why risk sports, in risk sports, athletes are dealing with their fears, uh, perhaps initially more so than later, but in every Risk, risk sport in every action there is always the possibility of dying but then athletes train themselves i mean if many of us were to do the same things we would be dead right i mean but they train themselves so that uh, the, the risk of death depending on the sport the risk of death is less but it's always there. a small mistake can take them to their death so but this doesn't mean that they really want to, to die and the, so it's basically, there's a fine line between fear and anxiety. In, in our everyday lives, we don't deal with our fears. We simply just let them live. Many of us, many times, uh, we live with our fears so, all, all the time uh, until we die. And the final fear is a fear of death uh, before we go. But, uh, but in sports, and that's not the, I'm not saying sport is the only field, the only medium, but in sports, we deal with our fears. Yeah. And almost in every sport, depending on, okay, every sport in performance, especially if you're really performing before an audience, uh, there's always fear. And then if you overcome your fear, then you're faced with your anxiety. Then, But then in risk sports, there's an added factor of dying, the risk of death uh, that uh, makes it even more fearsome. Uh, but then the level of anxiety could also be higher. So, because then you have dealt with the, the fear of death. So that's the the, the Breiviks, yeah, the, the, the interesting discussion. All the, the Heidegger, also skydiving, uh, and the so I benefited much uh, from from his reflections. But uh, but in many sports, uh, there could be even boxing. I mean, like boxing, the likelihood of being punched to death, and it it has happened in several cases. Yeah. And this summer, I've just read in 
in the news that in the Swiss Alps they have um because it's been so so warm and the snow has melted so they have found some human remains of the climbers who have died there you know 20 or 30 years ago or something like this and loads of people have lost their lives exploring the mountains for example and this is then always an ethical discussion in terms of what level of risk is acceptable and what about the people who they left behind their families and so forth so how do you think about this acceptable risk and 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 the ethics of you know putting yourself into these unnecessary <laughs> dangerous situations good question it's uh, to me uh, it's based on the individual it's individual make the decision right we uh, okay leaving people behind okay the first thing is they are exploring life although it's risky doesn't mean that they want to die uh, and uh, not everybody dies while they're climbing mountains or in fact, uh, something happened recently in the Swiss Alps. This past summer, some people died. Uh, I don't know how many, six or seven. Uh, either Swiss or the French Alps, I forgot. But uh, it is, a, uh, to me, it's entirely up to the individual. Uh, as long as the individual is of sane mind, uh, mental stability, mental and psychological stability, then it's entirely their choice uh, whether they want to take these risks or not. And, you know, it's through risk-taking that we overcome our fears. I don't know if, uh, okay, psychological therapy, perhaps to some extent, uh, you know, if you, I don't know, even in uh, therapy, I don't know if you can really overcome your, your fears entirely. I don't know, performance anxiety. I mean, if, okay, you could go to therapy as much as you want. If you never perform, uh, I don't know if you can really overcome your performance anxiety. I'm just like, it's just a small example. Uh, on the other hand, I would say that, you know, not to be suicidal, uh, these athletes need to be trained. Uh, that's the only thing I would say. They should be trained. They should know the risks that may face them. And then ultimately, it is their, their choice to take the risks they, they want to take yeah, to face their authenticity. Yeah. And uh, you mentioned, well, we talked a little bit about mountain climbing and then you have boxing as another context that you brought up and these are also quite different because the natural forces are quite uncontrollable whereas in boxing you're against some other person right right who is intentionally hitting you in the head and this is one of the topics that or a key aspect of your talk of your talk last um, just a couple of weeks ago in the IAPS conference that you discussed this violence and aggression and i think this is one of the maybe controversial aspects of your work so one of your theses is that this um, violence and aggression is something that we all have this uh, aggression within us and we need to discharge it somehow and so this is then the question i think we discussed in some of the retreats that not all martial artists or boxers would recognize or admit that they are aggressive or that they are violent right so and then from this, you then move to psychoanalysis, which is then another uh, strand of thought that you are working with. So your thesis would be that whether we want to admit or recognize it or not, we all have this aggressive uh, nature in us, and then we need to find appropriate ways to discharge, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, let's start with that. Uh, yes, I mean, that's uh, not just my conclusion, but that's also the conclusion of psychoanalysis. 
uh, that I believe is also in Nietzsche. Yeah. So basically, of course, there are different positions on this subject, but my position in agreement with Nietzsche, some of the psychoanalysts, is that human beings are an aggressive bunch. Uh, not just uh, this person or that person, that we uh, our psyche, aggression is part of our psyche. It's, uh, uh, of course, um, you could read uh, anthropological studies. Uh, Harar, Harari also claims that the Homo sapiens is a very aggressive species. Now, you know, how, how can we prove it? I don't want to get into uh, scientific proofs of this. Um, there are ample examples in history, in our behavior. If you uh, put human, any human being in a specific context, then you would bring out their aggressive behavior. So there are many st- psychological studies on that as well. So the first thing is to accept that we are aggressive. Now, where does aggression come from in the human psyche? So I know the, the, there are different answers to that. For Freud, he connects to the death drive. So the death drive... Death drive is, I don't know if it's the right term that he uses, Thanatos in Greek. It is a destructive drive. The way I look at it is a bit more Nietzschean, that we are part of the cycle of not only creation, but destruction, that we come into being, that we will be destroyed. That this cycle of destruction also goes through us, just like the cycle of creation goes through us. We are, we are created, but we are also created beings. Right, we create, we can procreate or create other things. But similarly, we are we are going to we are destroyed. We are going to be destroyed when we die, and therefore we are also destructive beings. So uh, this is, I believe, also in Hinduism. Hinduism also accounts for uh, the the destructive cycle. So that's my kind of explanation of um, of why we are destructive, and therefore uh, if that destruction is not channeled properly and that we can do it as human beings i guess we may be the only ones who can do it because we are cultural beings if you don't channel uh, destruction uh, into um, its proper place then we we would destroy each other which has been happening in history anyway I mean, we're destroying each other still we destroy each other today in wars and other ways so then then the question is if you don't want to destroy each other if you don't want to do wars or other kinds of destruction within the society, then we have to channel it, sublimate. That's the term in psychoanalysis, sublimate it. Okay, channel it, we know what that means. Sublimate it or uh, transfigure it. Transfiguration is a term used in Nietzsche. The difference between well, sublimation is we know what it is. There's a drive, a destructive drive. You simply channel it to something like creation works of art or books or what we do in academia, have discussions and debates. These are these, these, these are the kind of sublimation we can do. Or transfiguration, the difference is you raise the level of sublimation to a higher realm. I mean, you become, I don't know, philosopher, thinker, great artist, Da Vinci, or a great human being. So that's the whole, you, you better mention, you become overhumanly, through your sublimations. So why don't people agree with the fact that we are aggressive beings? First, I would say they limit aggression to physicality, the physical manifestation, whereas aggression could start in your soul, in your psyche. I mean, uh, you could be aggressive psychically. 
it could be linguistic aggression. So people are limiting the term aggression to its physical manifestation, whereas there are conditions of aggression, you know, psychic conditions and other kinds of conditions, mental conditions. So uh, that could be one reason why uh, they uh, limit it or they say, no, we, we are not, I've not done no harm, I haven't harmed anybody. But you know, it could be linguistic aggression. Uh, you could, uh, you could uh, put people down. You could curse them. You could blame them. Uh, you could drive them crazy simply with words. Right? That's also an aggression. I mean, that could make people angry, hurt. They they are unjustly accused of something they didn't do. They have no responsibility. Then they become angry. They could scream. Then they can be physically aggressive because you were verbally aggressive to them. So that's also aggression. Uh, I don't know why it should be limited to uh, the physical manifestation. So that could be one one reason. Of course, there's a discussion of feminism. Feminists claim that men are aggressive, women are not. I personally don't uh, agree with that assumption. I'm not sure even if there's a male psyche versus female psyche, that could also be a subject for discussion, uh, but we should not uh, forget the sociocultural constructs for genders, the historic sociocultural constructs. I mean, yes, there's a patriarchy uh, tradition for whatever, uh, thousands of years, uh, male-dominated societies, and a physical aggression probably is more common among men, yes, in the patriarchal societies. Uh, but you know we need to uh, look at the thing without these social con constructs, and we would discover that both women and men are aggressive. I would say. Would you say that in sport we could also sometimes talk about self-destruction? I'm just thinking in terms of athletes can be really pushing themselves through pain and injury and getting themselves so overtrained that you know that they are very talented at punishing themselves and now I need to train harder and yeah, pretty much destroy their bodies in the process. Yeah, I yeah, don't know. No. Self-destruction happens both in sports and real life. Um, I have, it's difficult to, I mean, okay, uh, if they're doing it intentionally, then we need to understand the psychological reasons. Unintentional self-destruction could happen. There's no control. They want to train. They want to get ready. But then there are unintentional injuries. Uh, there's, I, I wouldn't say there is any. I mean, simply happens. But the intentional uh, self-destruction that is something for uh, psychological evaluation. I would say uh, because after a certain point, uh, they will be disabled uh, to to do any sports. I mean, if they pass the threshold, they won't be able to do anything. So then it's self-defeating in a way. Uh, for their own sporting lives, life as an athlete. Yeah, but so basically a key argument for you is also that when we see great athletes and, and when if we think of this transfiguration, then these things that don't show up to us in terms of thinking about aggression or violence, that some athletes are just pursuing great deeds, great performances, but this could also be driven by aggression, but they have been able to transform it into something else, such as great performances, right? Exactly. And if we can do that more at a cultural level, social level, I think we will uh, deal not 
all the way, but to some extent, to hopefully larger extent, we will deal with our aggression and not then uh, create undue aggression, aggression towards uh, others, people around us uh, socially. So we will be less aggressive towards them, but then we will be aggressive in sports, which is its proper outlet where we, you know, punch or kick our more or less equal opponent. And then, of course, we could be punched as well. Um, yeah, definitely. I, now, people, some people say that uh, this is position, my position is too naive, that there's so many bigger political things. Even if everyone were to play sports, some kind of sport, and then they externalize their aggression, you're forgetting the political picture. Clearly, yeah, I, politics and psyche, they go together to a large extent. But my thing is, my response to them is, if our psyche is reconfigured in these ways, they will also impact our political formations, which don't start at the mega level only. They also start at micro levels. So we are going to be less violent and aggressive in the family towards our kids or whatever. Then that will also impact the bigger social picture, including politics. So politics, not just that it doesn't fall from the sky, there are, it has its own micro roots. So, well, of course, this it will take decades or centuries for us to, to evolve our uh, undue aggressions, including politics. Yes, I'm not saying that if we channel our aggression today, uh, you know, we're going to we'll be the, the, the done away with wars and destruction tomorrow. No, that's not the point. It will take maybe decades, centuries, if we could culturally transform our aggression. Yeah, it's not a naive point. It's maybe optimistic on my part to say that, you know, we can deal with our aggression. If we acknowledge it, we could possibly deal with it. But I'm not saying that we could uh, overcome uh, these kind of unjust or undue aggressions overnight. Yeah, and clearly with war in Ukraine and the whole political situation where we're living, these are these are the big questions, yeah, that philosophy can also help us to think about further, yeah. Yeah, philosophy and also psychology, psychoanalysis, yeah, restructuring of the psyche. Yeah, absolutely. And you already mentioned in the first part that philosophers often easily slip into discussing all the negative emotions, and we have talked about now ang- anger and aggression and all these things. But so in your book, you do also mention that there are the positive emotions. We talked about anxiety actually having a very positive element built into it. But then you talk also about joy, joy of sport. And loads of people, if you just go and ask them, why are they playing sport? Yeah, it, I enjoy it. It brings me joy mm-hmm. and so forth. So what does your book uh, have to offer in terms of uh, giving us some insight into the positive aspects such as uh, joy in sport? Yeah, well, two things. One, the, the, the positive emotions kind of in the strict sense like joy, euphoria, and all these are wonderful. They, we, we need to promote them. Um, and they have a great place in sports. But then the second thing, all these negative emotions, My one of the main things in my book is how we can transform, overcome these negative emotions when you overcome them, you are ending up the positive part of these emotions, right? If you overcome, let's say, a revenge, mediated revenge, so then you have dealt with it. So you are already on the positive spectrum of that emotion called revenge. Same thing with fear. Then, okay, we mentioned that fear. If you overcome your fear, 
then you are facing your anxiety, which is wonderful. Anxiety takes you to the high realms, to your own self, to your own self-discovery as an athlete, and then you joyfully accept, affirm yourself, and of course, the whole sporting community. So, you know, we could talk about even anger, which is a very common emotion. Uh, if you have anger issue or rage, you know, very intense anger and rage, if you deal with that, uh, then then you have overcome your anger. I mean, you don't have to bite your opponent when you are angry. Um, and I think that the athlete is maybe dealing with it. Uh, I know everybody knows it. Uh, I don't know where he is now with that, uh, the, the, the habit of biting. I guess it is probably part of, um, well, I, I haven't, I cannot psychoanalyze him. Uh, I am not a psychoanalyst, but uh, biting is a very basic instinct, right? Uh, it could be done out of anger or it could be done out of need, by biological need to bite. So we have to look into it. So I'm not sure if it's entirely out of anger. But nonetheless, coming back to anger, uh, it has to be dealt with. Uh, it will can disrupt the entire sport or game. That particular game, uh, big explosion anger can really end it, end the game. Uh, it's possible. And I'm sure it, is, it, ha- it has happened. Uh, it could end games if an athlete shows a outburst of rage. So that the positive side of anger is, uh, you know, when there's a conditional anger, uh, you you know what to do. I mean, you you don't explode. You talk. You file a complaint. Uh, you go to proper channels. You talk to trainer and coach and umpire and you know. Uh, but 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 let's keep in mind. I mean, always the structure of a game very crucial. I mean, organizers. Coaches, umpire, they play a crucial role to sustain, to make sure that a fair game happens. There's a lot of corruption and unfairness that's going to create a lot of bad emotions anyway. So then you have to deal with... So Basically, it's good to start with a good structure. Yes, conflicts can always happen. But then with a good structure, you minimize. You're also foreseeing, you're foreseeing possibilities of you know, negative emotion, you prevent many of them. Of course, conflicts could happen. Athletes could bump into each other. Then you go through proper channels to handle these so that athletes will not have these, you know, outbursts of rage or anger. Yeah, and somewhere in your book, you also write that uh, the joy of sport includes um, pain and suffering as well. And I think the point that sport itself is quite difficult right we encounter yes. so many setbacks and in order to reach a higher level we have to go through some challenging training that is not always very fun and we always experience these setbacks on the way so actually to reach joyful level of sport even if you're just recreational runner at the beginning it's quite painful with before you have come to a next level when it starts to be uh enjoyable yeah some of the pains could be long term i mean i i hurt my right shoulder playing while playing tennis and I basically yeah it could be it's a long-term pain i may need surgery so i you know basically it's a some of the things i'm not a professional athlete but but with professional athletes there could be long-term pain and suffering because of the sports and uh, but, you know, uh, pain is also part of life. So we have to, yeah. The joy that comes out of pain and suffering is maybe not 
pain itself, but uh, what we gain through our efforts when we suffer. I, I hope I, okay, my example, I'm not a professional athlete, so it's not a good example, but okay, then uh, athletes, they go through pain, uh, but then they overcome their pain and then through the, because they are you know, training, they, they get better and they improve themselves, and they, they play well, they win, they become victors. Uh, people celebrate their victory and they feel fulfilled. They feel joyful, although they suffered along the way. So that's kind of what I mean by uh, that could be joy at the end through their suffering and pain. In, in, in my case, the example would be how I suffer while writing books. That would be my not, I'm not going to be, you know, a professional tennis player, but uh, I would yeah, be basically suffering. Sure. Of course, I mean, hours of reading, research, writing. I mean, I, I could be on a beach in Italy or retreat, <laughs> eat good food. Exactly. Instead of spending all the time in your room reading and writing. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. But you went through the suffering of writing your book. Uh, I have it over here. And towards the end of your book, you go into discussing how we can care for our emotions in sport. We can do it individually, collectively as well. So what would be some of the takeaways in terms of how do we do that? Yeah, well, I mean, first, I highly recommend all uh, coaches, trainers, even athletes um, to, to take care of them. All human beings, but now our subject sports. Uh, yeah, they, and to take care of each emotion. I mean, you know, emotions are different and they have their own uh, their own evolution in human life, in our own individual lives. So we need to uh, take care of them individually. Like, look, there are anger management um, psychologists who well, specialize in anger management. There are grief counselors. If you're suffering, if you have excessive grief, uh, then yeah, there are all these different formations out there, but we need those for each of these primary emotions, if not all of them. I mean, emotions could be in the thousands, but at least we have some primary emotions like anger, uh, grief, uh, revenge, uh, I don't know, compassion and things like that. So uh, we we need to, yeah, we need to uh, take care of them, uh, all of them, especially the ones that where we have problems. You could be, it is possible that you are, an angry person, but you are not revengeful, meaning, and in fact, I met people like that. So then they don't have any revenge issue. They've dealt with it in their lives on their own, but now they have an anger problem. So they need, they cannot control their anger, right? So then they need to take care of their anger. So that's what I mean by care of emotions. We have many resources. We have psychology, psychoanalysis, philosophy. We have writers who write on emotions, even fiction, in films, yeah, there's so many. There are uh, anger management centers. There are no, unfortunately, there are no um, centers or associations for every emotion, every primary emotion. Now, as far as I know, there's anger, there's grief, but there's uh, what about boredom? I mean, boredom is also, especially today with the new generations, they're bored to death. They get together, they're on their cell phones. I mean, what about socializing? I mean, what happened to you know, the, the good old conversation, talk, dialogue, right? So people are bored. I mean, why are you bored? I mean, there's so many. So boredom, I mean, that's, there's a therapy for it. Maybe athletes don't suffer much from it. I don't know. But what I'm saying is 
every emotion needs its specific attention and care. So hopefully, I mean, psychology is big on this topic. Hopefully there will be more attention given to every specific main emotion. So that's what I mean by care of emotions. And of course, uh, coaches would definitely benefit. I mean, everybody would, I hope I didn't write this book only for scholars, but also athletes and for people in the sporting community. I think it's not very difficult to read. Yes, there's a philosophical part. But it, I don't think it's very heavy. Of course, readers will decide whether it's heavy. But I did not. I try to write it lightly, so that it's more accessible to anyone in the sporting community. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And my main field of research is in psychology, and this book certainly you introduce key ideas and you take them to very practical examples as well, and you cover such a broad, uh, big scope of uh, different emotions. Just the conversation today we had is uh, gone from one end to the other. So yeah, absolutely. I, I recommend it and I'll be linking it also to, to our discussion. Okay, Yunus, we've spent a long time together today. So thanks so much. Uh, last question, is something new coming out from you in relation to emotions in sport in the future? Are you working on something, uh, new ideas? Not a, there are many new ideas, many new projects, but in a sport philosophy and also emotion sports, I am a, not a book. I'm still working on uh, psychoanalysis and sport connection, and I am a, working on a paper a, for a, a special issue on this topic, on a sports philosophy and psychoanalysis, and I'm still working on aggression, but I'm going to approach it from the angle of drives, uh, the, the drive theory today we didn't talk much about it except the death drive yes we talked about that the death drive you know what exactly is drive uh, why is drive not an instinct connection to instinct and what is the death drive the aggression all that and the one thing that we didn't mention today is the role of the superego in the human psyche that's the freudian thing the superego it and ego the role of superego in sublimation it's not just a moral agency but it's kind of a mediator coordinator in the psyche so i want to take that approach look at superego as a coordinator uh, in restructuring the psyche and how that restructuring could happen the role of sport in and playing uh, sport in that restructuring so these are this kind of my new project i have to do some more reading uh, in psychoanalysis and hopefully finish the paper uh, by the end of the year okay sounds excellent so something to look forward to seeing where you end up with that thank you good let's finish up thank you so much for the conversation today thank you thanks nora all the best to you and thank you for having me today thanks for joining us this week on physical activity research podcast if you like the show, make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing or following the show on Twitter. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you for your support. If you found value in the show, we would really appreciate a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever app you use. Or if you would, in a real old school way, simply tell a friend about the show. It would be great help for us we have a fantastic lineup of guests for forthcoming episodes 
So be sure to tune in. Thank you all for your support and have a great day.